So let's read uh, Psalm 2. The reign of the Lord's anointed. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, a light, and a light shone in a cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. 
And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him, and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Father, your word says that all people are like grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so we pray now as we look at your eternal word, your lasting word, that you would open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to trust you, to understand you, and to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you are new to this church, you may not realize that we have kind of friends all over the world, and we prayed for some of them just recently, friends serving in all sorts of places, and it's something we rejoice in, to have kind of partners internationally. It's a privilege to support them, to pray for them, to hear news back from them. But uh, this morning, I want you to imagine how you'd feel if I stood up here and said, look, I've got terrible news to share. Bad news. I need to tell you that one of our gospel partners has been killed. And not killed in an accident or a car crash. Deliberately killed by the authorities of the country they're serving in. Killed because they were Christian. How would you feel if you want to put a face on it? Think of our brother from a few weeks ago. It's just a horrible thought, isn't it? It's a terrible thought. And I'm not saying it for shock value. That's exactly where our passage starts. Chapter 12, verse, uh, page 920, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 12, at, at that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James. That's James, the brother of John, with the sword. So our passage begins with acts of violence against the church. And we've seen that before in Acts. If you've been around, we've had, had lots of um, persecution. Remember Saul dragging people out of their houses. But the shocking thing here is that it's one of the leaders, one of the apostles, James, assassinated by Herod, the political authority. It is a shattering moment. I was going to do kind of just a general summary talk this morning, but then I got to verse 2. It's a shattering moment when James is killed. 
just as shattering, probably more shattering than if I stood up here and said one of our friends around the world has been killed. You can just imagine the kind of questions the church would be asking. What's going to happen with his family? What's going to happen to all the people that he was serving, encouraging, leading? The reflective questions, could, could we have seen this coming? Is there anything we could have done to avoid it? The theological questions, I guess the, the biggest questions of all. Why did God allow a key church leader to be killed? What's going on? Has God taken his hands off the wheel? Is he taking a quick break from kind of ruling the world? Maybe he passed the keys to Herod for a short time. Where's the mighty King Jesus of the early chapters of Acts now? And it really would be shocking news. I mean, as shocking as it would be um, to see one of our friends and partners killed, James, he's an apostle, not just a leader, but one of the apostles. And not just any apostle kind of making up the 12. He's one of the key three Jesus had a kind of a group of three, uh, Peter, James, and John, who were his closest followers. There were certain things that only they were allowed to see. Only they were up the mountain when Jesus was transfigured. They are the three witnesses of that amazing, unique event. And then within a single sentence, one of the three witnesses is dead. And it gets worse, verse 3. When Herod saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he'd seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Peter is the second of that trio of apostles, and he's now in prison. Herod wants to solidify his power. He wants to increase his respect with the Jewish authorities by picking on the leadership of these defenseless Christian leaders. Which, incidentally, that is quite a popular thing to do still today. You find a kind of defenseless minority that lots of people don't like and pick on them. Especially one that won't fight back because Jesus said, our our fight is not with flesh and blood. We're not to fight back. So pick on the the harmless, um, disliked minority to get some popular support. And the plan is to kill Peter as well. That's why he's waiting to the end of the Passover festival, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So then, just imagine not just that I shared the news that one of our partners had been killed, but that another one had been arrested and we knew they were on death row. There's no hope of appeal here. Herod's not that kind of guy. There's no hope of delay because the timetable's been set. It's just going to be to the end of this week, the unleavened bread time, and then he dies. There's no hope of going above Herod's head because Herod is the kind of biggest authority we've seen so far in Acts. He's the regional king, verse 1. And actually, we know from background history that um, he had friends in high places. So he was good friends with the Roman emperors, uh, Caligula and then Claudius. And obviously, there's no hope of escape. I mean, he commands squadrons of troops. Verse 4, when he seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. All that's to say, as chapter 12 opens, things are pretty dark. The church is driven to pray, verse 5. But actually, the days keep ticking down. 
By verse 6, we're up to the point where tomorrow Peter will be killed, the final night. Things are pretty dark. And we need to realize there are times in church history, globally, times in a nation's particular spiritual history, times in our own histories, our own life histories, our local church histories, where things feel pretty dark, where the the God who seemed to be ruling so clearly and so brightly early in Acts suddenly seems to have disappeared, seems to have lost control. Seems like the human powers, the authorities, have got the upper hand. And of course, it's not just that things feel dark. They are actually dark here. need to take seriously that in black and white, this passage records that sometimes when Christians stick their neck out, it gets chopped off. Sometimes Christians in this life, in terms of this life, sometimes Christians do lose Sometimes they lose their livelihoods or lose their jobs or lose their leaders or lose their court cases or lose their lives. James died. The reason I'm spending a bit of time on this is because there is this false teaching around it. It's lies, but it it says that in these last days, Christians should only ever experience victory, prosperity, health, wealth, security, your best life now, if you just had enough faith, if you just subscribed to the right televangelist. But that prosperity gospel is contradicted again and again in Scripture. And so before we get to the good news of this chapter, and there is a lot, God is on the throne. Before we get there, we need point one. There's a handout on the back of your sheet if you want to see where we're going. Point one. Powerful rulers often oppose the church. And so Christians will suffer. Powerful rulers often oppose the church, and so Christians will suffer. I wonder if we actually believe that statement is true and is relevant to us. I think it's easy to think of the first few verses of this passage as something that maybe the church in North Korea needs to hear, or Iran needs to hear, or East Asia needs to hear. Not so much in sunny Scotland. This is not really our problem. There are two things wrong with that, though. Firstly, we're partnered with Christians around the world. So their problems are our problems. Do you remember where chapter 11 ended? Um, 11 verse 30, the, there was an impending famine coming to Jerusalem, and the Christians in Antioch weren't oblivious to the suffering of Christians in another place but actually partnered with them, supported them. Their suffering is our business. We stand with them. So for that reason, it's relevant to us. But but actually, I do think we, we need to know this for our country as well, that powerful rulers do often oppose the church. After a a hugely extended period of peace and religious freedom in our nation, it is easy to assume that's how it always goes, how it always will go. But that's an exception to the norm, whether you look historically or globally. Usually it's the case that that rulers oppose the witnessing church. Picking on Christians is often popular. Submitting to the authority of Jesus is often unpopular. And rulers will be the first to not want to do that. So often they're not the witnessing church's friends. And we've seen that through Acts, haven't we? So multiple times uh, we've seen uh, rulers 
oppose the church in Acts. There was the interrogation and threatening of Peter and John, chapter 4. There was the imprisoning and beating of the apostles, chapter 5. There was the stoning by a mob of Stephen, chapter 7. There was Saul's terror campaign, chapter 9. And now Herod, the pagan king, chapter 12. I mean, the pattern's not hard to see, is it? Powerful rulers often oppose the church. The first of those uh, times of opposition, the church prayed, and they prayed in the words of Psalm 2. That's why I got us to read Psalm 2 earlier in the morning. It says this, it will come up on the screen. It says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that's his chosen king, the messianic king, so Jesus. And they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Psalm 2 expects us to, sorry, leads us to expect that human authorities, rulers, kings, the powerful, will want to assert their authority against King Jesus, the Lord's chosen king. It's what happened when Jesus was on earth. It's what keeps happening now Jesus is in heaven. I mean, no simple human being likes God telling them what to do. And I think the thing is, the more powerful you are in this world, the more likely you are to believe the myth that I'm too big to have to listen to God. And the more you'll exert against anyone who says differently. We shouldn't be surprised by powerful rulers opposing the church. But I think despite all that, it's not a surprise. It's been there since Psalm 2, but I think it is still shocking. Shocking when it happens. Of course we'd be shocked by the news of a a dead global partner. Of course they were shocked by the death of James. Christians actually get hurt. And it's not just apostles, I'm afraid this is the bad news, it's not just apostles, it's not just leaders, it's not just the kind of street preachers and evangelists like Stephen in chapter 7. Actually, just normal everyday Christians get caught up in this crossfire. So if you pick up news from the Barnabas Fund or Open Doors, you'll see plenty of evidence of ground-level believers facing difficulty, suffering. As we keep taking one step forward to speak for Jesus, to live for Jesus, especially, I guess, in the public square, in in workplaces, and um, the kind of context God's put us in life, well, as we live with different standards and speak of a different viewpoint, what Jesus says, in a world that wants rid of him, well, more and more we'll realize that Christian growth comes with Christian suffering. Maybe if you're not a Christian here, that's one of the things that puts you off. If I became a Christian, then what would people think of me? And Jesus is very kind. He doesn't hide this in the small print. This isn't just here in chapter 12 of Acts. It's not just something I'm saying. Just look at what Jesus himself says. This is John 15. It will come up on the screen. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. And the Apostle Paul later underlines that really does include every Christian. This is from 2 Timothy. 
Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Those are the two of the passages I'd love to chop out the Bible if I was the editor. But I'm not. Can't tamper with God's word. Wouldn't it be nice if God's kingdom could grow and you could live a godly life and not face any opposition? No kind of comments or laughs. No looks. No legislation, potentially. No lawyers. No loss of income. No loss of life. But if that's how they treated Jesus, it is how they treat his people sometimes. It's not always, that's why I've said powerful rulers often oppose the church. You may be thinking of authority figures in your life who aren't like that, and praise God for that. But it is often the case, and we need to realize this. I've been struck, this, is the, this chapter is the last moment before the gospel really expands globally in Acts. So from Acts 13 onwards, and Paul's missionary journeys begin. That's the kind of real spread that we've been expecting all the way since chapter 1. This is the last chapter before we get there. And it's really striking what God thinks we need to be reminded of before the explosion. So in chapter 9, Saul was turned around and he was commissioned that he would take the gospel to the Gentiles, to kings. Chapter 9. Ever since then, we've been thinking, well, okay, when are you going to get on with it? Chapter 13 is when Saul gets on with it the missionary journeys. But between those points, there are some key things we need to know. Here's God's briefing of what you need to know if you're going to be involved in taking the gospel to the nations. Firstly, God accepts all types of people, Cornelius. He's not prejudiced in who the gospel can work for. Secondly, we need to work together across cross-cultural gospel partnership between churches. That's chapter 11. Jew and Gentile churches working together. Churches from different backgrounds working together. But chapter 12, thirdly and finally, it's going to hurt. God will accept all sorts of people. We need to work together to spread the gospel. But chapter 12, it's going to hurt. Powerful rulers often oppose the witnessing church. So Christians will suffer. But actually, chapter 12 doesn't end our series in Acts on a depressing note. I know that's a sobering place to begin, but actually, I've paused the action at at verse 4, really, to kind of see how serious and dark things looked. But from verse 5 onwards, the church is praying, and they're a huge step forward. So this is point 2. If we want to keep going, we need points two and three in our minds and hearts. Point two, God is the one with the real power. We'll get to point three. God will not endure pretenders to his throne forever. But point two, God is the one with real power. If you just look back at the screen for a moment, do you know what um, God's response was in Psalm 2? Do you know what the one who sits in the heavens does when when he sees this kind of international um, authorities pushing back against King Jesus? Um, It's funny, it's it's not surprise, it's not shock like we have. It's not anger initially, it's laughter. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. Occasionally, um, Grace, my three-year-old daughter, decides that she wants to drive our car. She really thinks the, the front seat seems to be where the action's at rather than her car seat at the back. 
And she can be quite determined about that. Um, you know, the kind of thermonuclear tantrum. <laughs> the arms and legs are flailing. She's shouting and screaming at me. I have to confess, I sometimes find it funny. Jess tells me not to smile. Apparently, it doesn't help discipline. But it is funny. She's never going to drive the car. It's my car. And she's a three-year-old. Maybe when she's 18. Maybe. She wants to be the drush, she wants the boss, she wants to drive the car, but she is not. The argument can never be won. And so it is with the kings of the earth. Picture any world king, emperor, empire. God laughs at their opposition to Jesus Christ. And as we read through the, the rest of the chapter, that, that kind of imbalance of power just becomes so obvious. Uh, Peter's in prison. Verse 6, Herod's clearly done everything he can to kind of lock Peter down. It's funny, really, because, I mean, Peter's not, he's not a CIA operative. Like, he's a Galilean fisherman turned preacher. But nevertheless, they're in kind of full, high-risk prisoner lockdown formation. So there are four sets of guards. They're probably covering each of the four watches of the night. And verse 6, there's a soldier either side of him. And they're chained to him. That's what the two bound chains are doing. And there are sentries at the guard, just in case he manages to kind of wrestle them off somehow. Herod's exerting his power. But the church are praying. It's a church that looks like it's been brought to its knees. One of its chief leaders dead, the other one's on death row, but they're on their knees praying. That makes quite a difference. Because the power of the living God is unstoppable. He is infinitely bigger than Herod or Trump or Putin or Kim or May or Bania or Merkel or Macron. They're just grasshoppers to him. And so the angel of the Lord goes and just fetches Peter. It's amazing, isn't it? That as you read through, that the chains just fall off. They just walk past the guards unnoticed. This iron gate to the city just swings open of its own accord. God can get anyone out of anywhere or anything at any moment. Click of his fingers. The psalmist says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He who sits in the heavens laughs. There's something else as you read through the escape of Peter. It's not just the ease, the power with which God can release him. It's also how weak and pathetic the Christians are. Did you notice that when we read? Neither Peter nor the praying church actually believe this rescue is possible. Have a look, verse 9. Peter did not know, halfway through, what was being done to him by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. I mean, Peter in this episode, it's hilarious. He has to be woken up. He has to be kind of kicked on the side. He has to be told to put clothes on. He definitely doesn't expect to end up in Jerusalem. Um, it's only by verse 11, when he's actually standing in the street, a free man, that he realized this is not a dream. Oh, now I'm sure that God has rescued me by his angel. And when he gets to the kind of safe house where the other Christians are meeting, verse 13, well, it's real comedy again, because he's knocking to get in, and, you know, escaped convict, high-value target. Presumably, he doesn't want to knock too loud, he doesn't want to knock too long, because the guards will wake up eventually and the search will begin. And, and brilliant, it's Rhoda, someone who knows him. Brilliant. She recognizes his voice and then leaves him hanging. 
Verse 14, recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gates. And what does the mighty, faithful, prayerful early church think when the the very miracle they're presumably praying for occurs? Verse 15, they said to her, you are out of your mind. She kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. This can't really be happening. (laughs) Don't you know how many chains Herod has? God is bigger than we think. Far, far bigger. To put it in Ephesians language, God is able to do far more than we ask or imagine. Those of us who were at the men's breakfast recently heard that we need to remember God is big and people are not. Even this praying church didn't seem to fully believe what was possible for God. It's not that God always rescues his people from incarceration. Remember James. Stephen died, James died, many more have died. But this episode is on record to show us he absolutely can. He is the true sovereign, the real ruler, the one with the real power. It doesn't matter how many soldiers or chains Herod puts on the doors. It doesn't matter where Peter's being held. Once God decides he wants him out, he's out. I hope that's an encouragement for us as we pray for the persecuted church around the world. I hope it's an encouragement for us as we pray for our more local, maybe less scary but still scary situations where we do face animosity or difficulty for speaking publicly about Jesus. If there ends up being opposition as we plant a new outward-looking church in southwest Edinburgh, I hope this is an encouragement to us. Yes, there are all sorts of ways that authorities can make life difficult for a witnessing church, but God has the real power. I was thinking this morning, I think this might be the most important document we publish. Chalmers produces a lot of documents, lots of strategy things, but this prayer diary might be the most important thing we publish. I hope that's an encouragement to come to the monthly prayer meeting, not because... I say so, or Robin says so, but because that's where the real power is with our mighty living God. Or to find a Christian friend you can pray with about your workplace. Or to ensure prayer doesn't get squeezed out in our small groups, however interesting the question someone just asked was. See, tonight in Ephesians, we're going to see that the only way Christians can stand in a world against Jesus is in the strength of God's might. And an episode like Peter's release, I think, shows us why. God is infinitely more powerful than anyone we will meet this week, anyone we are intimidated by, anyone around whom we're tempted to change our behavior to be a bit less obviously Christian. Whoever intimidates you is living in God's world. So that's point two. God is the one with the real power. He who sits in the heavens laughs. But actually, going back to Psalm 2, God's reaction doesn't end with comedy. It ends with wrath. So he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And this is our third point. 
God will not endure pretenders to his throne forever. God will not endure pretenders to his throne forever. See, the very last scene before the missionary journeys start isn't the death of James. It isn't the rescue of Peter. It's the judgment of Pharaoh, the king. The story of how after he borrowed the crown for a while and after he flexed his muscles for a while and swung his sword for a while, he faced God's judgment. Again, we've seen this a lot. This is, I think, a kind of stark, worked example, a visible demonstration of a much more universal principle. And the principle is that because God has chosen Jesus as his king, he won't endure pretenders to the throne forever. From verse 20 onwards, Herod's regal status, his, his majesty is really stressed. Let me read them. It's laid on thick. Verse 20, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. So on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. The mighty King Herod, the one who seems to hold your life in his hand. And they say, like lots of people do, some flattery around a powerful person that everyone's scared of. Verse 22, the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Herod must kind of like that statement. Interesting, when Peter was told something similar, Cornelius bowed down. He said, get up. What are you doing? I'm just a man. Herod seems to have forgotten that. And so God teaches him a permanent lesson, teaches us a permanent lesson. Death, the great humbler, the great equalizer, dust to dust. Herod, you may have grand designs on the throne of the universe. And it's not just official kings. I mean, lots of people today essentially live like I am the king of the universe. I define what's right and wrong. I define the purpose of life. Many people act like they're not accountable to anyone, but we are. And God uses death to make that very clear. Verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Herod gets the... Ananias and Sapphira treatment, if you were here, that kind of immediate fast forward to final judgment. And it is proof that Herod is not God. He's living in God's world on borrowed time. He made it seem like he could create food for all these people. He ends up as food for worms. And it is real history, by the way, um, Herod's death is recorded in a Jewish historian, Josephus, and he, he comments that it happened just after he was giving this speech. A sudden terrible illness gripped him. Now, what's the lesson for us? It's not that this will always happen to despots at their kind of proudest moments. Remember, we're in the last days where Jesus is waiting for his enemies to be put under his feet. This is a case study to show us that what happens to Herod will happen to all 
rulers and authorities who set themselves up against Jesus, set themselves up as an independent authority. Verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. Human beings are like grasshoppers or like flowers, grass. We, we come one day, gone the next. God and his word is eternal, unstoppable. We could name hundreds of kings, rulers, emperors who've opposed Jesus, who've tried to silence the gospel. And yet here we are in Scotland. They're in the ground and we're reading Acts, hearing the same gospel. God's word lasts. And all of that means when we are faced with the choice, the choice of allegiance, the kind of why don't you just submit to the status quo, the political correctness, the ideas currently backed by human authorities around us, instead of resolutely sticking with Jesus and his words? Why don't you just bend? Well, we can be certain that the message that will still be standing in a hundred years or a thousand years, it won't be the vogue ethics the philosophies of the human cultures that come and go. The word of God increases and multiplies. And so actually that, that message from the men's breakfast is something I think that could summarize Acts so far for us. Being able to tell the difference between who is God and who is man is really important, and we've heard it so many times. It's what Herod got wrong, the voice of a God, not a man. And actually, we've heard that again and again. Let me, as we begin to pull things together for Acts, let me read a few quotes where we've heard that before. Chapter 4, when told to, to shut up about Jesus, Peter and John answered their accusers, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Chapter 5, to Ananias and Sapphira, Peter said, Why is it you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've lied not to man, but to God. God's the one that matters. Chapter 5, before the council, we must obey God rather than men. Just again and again, that repeated choice. Is it going to be man or God who influences you that we obey, fear, trust? And obviously the sensible answer is God, because he's unstoppable, <laughs> can't be stopped. We've heard that repeatedly. Remember Gamaliel's advice about um, trying to stop the apostles and the spread of this message? If this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you'll not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. We even heard it, actually, in chapter 11. Let's have a look at verse 17. Um, on the page across, oh, sorry, across the page. Chapter 11, verse 17. Peter says, look, if God gave them the same Holy Spirit gift as he gave to us when we believed in Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? God wins. And what God is doing is taking the good news of Jesus globally. And so as we close this whole church motto series in Acts, I want to ask how our confidence in that has grown. We've been saying Luke wants us to have certainty, 
Certainty that Jesus is not dead and buried, but alive and reigning. And certainty about what he's doing, taking forgiveness to the ends of the earth. And there are no powers, no amounts of blockages or opposition or setbacks or difficulties or hostilities that can stop him. What happens on the ground varies. Sometimes Jesus frustrates the authorities. Sometimes he saves the authorities. Sometimes he judges the authorities like Herod. But at no time do they thwart what he's doing. We need to remember that because on the ground it can feel terrifying. It can feel dark, like the moment when James is killed and Peter's arrested. But the simple fact is Jesus Christ is just too powerful to stop, too kind to be distracted. He set his face to the nations. He wants people to hear of forgiveness. He died to earn it, and he's determined it spread. And we can have confidence, not because we're strong. I mean, the Christians in this chapter are pathetic. Not because we're strong, but he is strong, and by his Spirit can strengthen us to keep witnessing. Now, I've heard lots of encouragements from people about how Acts has been shaping our hearts, encouraging us, giving us confidence. I know it can feel very big picture, this book. Kind of this is what Jesus is doing until he returns. It's a kind of plan for the universe stuff. But each and every life in this room fits inside that big picture. And as we chat together and keep discussing and praying in small groups, I hope we know that the same God who's doing all this is with us in our classrooms or our offices or our homes or the streets tomorrow. He's not confined to a temple in Jerusalem. He's wherever the people of Jesus are. And so however scary the people around us, however intimidating those in our minds are, Well, God is God, and people are not. And praise God that just as he was determined to get the gospel as far as us, for which we'll be eternally grateful, he's determined to get it further. Our Father in heaven, we are weak, faced with the enormity of the gospel going to the nations, to the ends of the earth, to the ends of our streets, to every other street, we often just feel so weak, so inadequate. We thank you so much. You are strong and determined and kind, gracious. And we pray you would continue to move in our hearts to help provide opportunities and give us the courage to take opportunities to speak of Jesus. We pray that many people would hear of him through us. In Jesus' name, amen.